In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Jesus said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Caveat emptor. Loosely translated, that Latin phrase means, let the buyer beware. But as the celebrated auction house Sotheby's in New York City discovered just a few years ago, it's not just the buyer, but the seller who also needs to be cautious and wary. In early 2012, Sotheby's sold a 16th century Italian masterpiece entitled St. Jerome to a private collector for the whopping sum of $842,000. According to the catalog, the painting came from the hand of the well-known Italian master Francesco Mazzola. And what's more, it came with an impeccable provenance. In fact, before the painting arrived in New York, it had been on display for some time in Austria at Vienna's renowned National Gallery. But now it had come to the States, and it was up for sale to the highest bidder. Here was the opportunity of a lifetime, the opportunity for some discriminating collector to acquire a genuine masterpiece from the high point of European artistic achievement, a genuine masterpiece from the time of the Renaissance. There was just one small problem. It wasn't true. In 2016, four years after the sale, the painting went in for some analysis in anticipation of some much-needed restoration. And that's when a very unhappy discovery was made. It was discovered that the chemical pigments in the paint did not date to Mazzola's time. In fact, they actually dated to the 20th century, which meant that the painting that Sotheby's had sold could not have come from the hand of the master. It did not date to the 16th century. It was not worth the huge price that it had garnered at auction, and it was not, contrary to what many people thought, the opportunity of a lifetime. The painting was, in point of fact, fake, a fraud, a well-detailed, well-done forgery, but a forgery all the same. In the words of James Martin, the forensic scientist and conservator who made the discovery, genuine articles always have distinguishing marks. Look for the marks, he said, and you will find the real thing. Well, here in today's Gospel lesson from John chapter 17, Jesus presents us with the distinguishing marks of the authentic Christian life. Those telltale signs that he says help us to distinguish between a true, legitimate follower of Christ and those who are simply cheap imitations. I sometimes refer to this 17th chapter of John as the real Lord's Prayer. Because unlike that prayer that begins with the words, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, this is a prayer that Jesus actually prayed. That prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father, that was never a prayer that Jesus himself ever used. Did you know that? It was simply a model or template for prayer that Jesus gave for his disciples to use in their own prayer life. 
Jesus would never have prayed, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us because as the sinless Son of God, he had never trespassed to begin with. No, that prayer is wonderful and as meaningful as it is, is not the real Lord's Prayer. But what we have before us here in John 17 is, this is a prayer that Jesus himself actually uttered. It's a prayer that he uttered just hours before his crucifixion. And it's a prayer in which the Lord prays specifically for his disciples. And not just for his disciples, but he says, for all those who will believe in him through the disciples' word. In other words, this is a prayer in which Jesus is praying for us. He's praying for you and for me. Now you may be wondering, well, what is Jesus asking for? What is he asking the Father to grant us? He's asking the Father to grant us the distinguishing marks of that authentic Christian life. Let me ask you a question this morning. What do you think should be the distinguishing marks of a Christian man or woman? Or to put it in a slightly different way, what do you think should be the primary characteristics of a follower of Jesus? Well, here in this prayer, Jesus suggests to us five things specifically. And while we don't have the time to do justice to all of them, I do want to touch on each of them briefly. Because it's really as a whole and not in part that they pick, give us a picture of the kind of life that you and I are called to live. So that being said, what is the first mark that Jesus mentions, this first mark of the authentic Christian life? Well, you can find it in verse 13 of today's reading. Jesus prays, but now, O Father, I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Joy, Jesus said, is the first mark of the authentic Christian life. Now, if you think about it, that seems rather strange. Most of us would have expected that love would have been the first mark that Jesus mentioned, that love would have led the list. But that just goes to show how little we regard joy these days and how far we have actually drifted from the spirit of the early church. In the New Testament, the verb to be joyous or joyful is found no less than 70 different times. And the noun joy is found an additional 60 times. Now that's an awful lot of joy. And that's because the early Christians were a particularly joyful people. In fact, I would go so far as to suggest that it was perhaps this aspect of their character that more than anything else impressed the unbelieving world around them. For in spite of the fact that they were persecuted, abused, oppressed, sometimes even to the point of death, the early believers nonetheless remained cheerful, confident, joyous. Think for a moment about the very first Christian martyr, Stephen. The book of Acts says Stephen was dragged out into a public square and put to death, pummeled with stones for his faith in Christ. And yet the account says that he was cheerful. He was confident. He was joyous. He even prayed for those who were persecuting him. 
Now, where does the ability come from to be joyful in adverse circumstances like that? Well, it comes from the knowledge that joy and happiness are not necessarily the same things. Happiness is what our culture craves. Happiness is what everybody talks about. But as Brian pointed out in his sermon last week, they are not necessarily the same thing. Happiness is an emotion. It's a feeling. It is a very fickle thing. It is dependent entirely upon your circumstances. So if everything's going your way, you just hit the lottery, well, you're happy. But if things are not going your way, if things are against you, you are unhappy. But joy, you see, is nothing like that. Joy is not an emotion and a feeling. It's, it's not dependent on our circumstances. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a supernatural grace that comes to us through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And what that means is that you can be joyful even if the world around you is in complete turmoil. Ask yourself, was Stephen happy when he was being pummeled with rocks? No. Was he cheerful, joyful? Yes. Confident in the knowledge that in his death or in his life, he belonged to Christ. Let me tell you, I think if there is one thing that the church of today needs perhaps more than anything else, it is joyful Christians. Far too many Christians are complainers, chronic complainers, and sad sacks. Daniel Webster, the great 19th century statesman and senator, was once asked why he chose politics as a career. And do you know what he said? He said, well, I once thought about going into the ministry until I realized that all the ministers I knew looked and acted so much like undertakers. <laughs> well, that is a sad commentary on the members of the clergy, to be sure. But it's not just the ministers. It's lay people, too. Jesus says joy is a mark of the authentic Christian like when people look at your life, do they see joy? Or do they see someone where the glass is always half empty? Joy, it's a true mark of the authentic Christian. But while joy is the first mark of the authentic Christian life, the second one is holiness. And it's just as important. Verse 16, Jesus prays, Father, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The critical word in this passage is sanctify. It's the word from which we get our term saint. And literally, it means to be set apart. When you sanctify a building like the one we're in today, you are setting it apart for a special or holy purpose. When the celebrant goes to the altar and sanctifies the ordinary elements of bread and wine, he is setting them apart for a special purpose. Well, when Jesus prays that his disciples might be sanctified, this is what he means. He wants them to be set apart for a purpose. Set apart from what? 
well, primarily set apart from the world. Listen again to how he puts it. He says, Father, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. This means that a good way to understand holiness is simply to contrast it with worldliness. Now, when you think of the world, when you think of worldly behavior, when you think of the, the attitudes and the values and the lenses through which people view life that are worldly, what immediately springs to mind? Well, four things spring to mind for me. I call them the four great isms. I've mentioned them before. But these are the lenses through which worldly people view life. The first is secularism. That's the belief that this life is all there is. You only go around once, so grab all the gusto you can get. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you die. The second ism is relativism. This is the idea that there's no such thing as absolute truth. There are only individual versions of it. You've got your version of the truth, she's got her version of the truth, I've got my version of the truth, and they're all equal. The third ism, materialism. This is the view that it's all about the stuff. Whoever dies with the most toys, houses, boats, cars, whatever, wins. And the fourth ism is multiculturalism. This is the idea that all cultures, all beliefs, all religions are equal, equally praiseworthy, and equally important. Now these are the lenses through which worldly people view life. But Jesus said his followers have been set apart. They do not operate according to the standards of the world. The holy person realizes that this life is not all there is. There is a life beyond the grave. And what's more, the decisions we make here and now will determine where we will spend eternity. The holy person realizes that truth is not relative. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. The holy person realizes that it's not all about the stuff. You can have everything that money buys and still be empty, or you can have nothing and still be perfectly satisfied. And the holy person realizes that no, not all cultures, all religions, all views are equal. There are objective categories of truth, beauty, and justice. Now where does the holy person get this new set of lenses through which to view life? Well, Jesus gives us the answer in the passage. He says, Father, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, for your word is truth. Simply put, a holy person is someone who walks not according to the world, but according to the word. Now, when people look at you, what do they see? As you operate in your business, as you raise your children, as you spend your money, do you find yourself walking according to the world or do you find yourself walking according to the Word? Jesus says holiness is a mark of the authentic Christian life. So we have joy, we have holiness. Here's the third mark. It's a heart for mission. 
In verse 18, Jesus says, Father, as you have sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. William Temple, who was the great Archbishop of Canterbury during World War II, once said that the Christian church is the only organization that exists for the sake of those who are not yet its members. Think about that. The Christian church is the only organization that exists for the sake of those who are not yet its members. Most organizations exist for the sake of its members or its constituents. If you're a member of the Yacht Club, that organization exists for the sake of its members. If you're a member of an investment club, that club exists for the sake of its investors, its members. And the same is true for all the myriads of clubs and societies that exist in this city. They exist primarily for the sake of their members. But the New Testament says the Christian church exists for one overriding purpose, to seek and to save the lost. The Christian church exists for the purpose of bringing those who are on the outside and making them a part of the fellowship on the inside. You know, in one sense, it's rather strange. On the one hand, Jesus does not want his disciples to be like the world. He wants them to be sanctified, set apart. But he also realizes that if they are set apart, they are going to face intense persecution and hatred. He says it in verse 14. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because you are, they are not of the world. Well, someone might ask, well, if Jesus doesn't want us to be like the world, and being different from the world is going to result in persecution, why doesn't Jesus just take his followers out of the world? Why does he just remove us from this suffering and this pain that results from being different? Well, you know, that's a good question, isn't it? It's a legitimate question. But there's a good answer. Jesus says, Father, as you sent me into the world, so I send them. You and I are called to be in the world because Christ came into the world. We say it every Sunday as part of the comfortable words. And this is a true saying and worthy of all men to be saved that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? I didn't hear you. To save sinners. That's right. That's why He came. He left the glory, the majesty of heaven, condescended, went through the suffering, the pain, the agony of the cross to save us. And because we are His people, we are called to go and do the same. Out into the world to bring those who are on the outside in. I've got a dear friend who says, if you do not have a missionary heart, you have only half the blessing of the gospel. Well, do you? You have a missionary heart? Do you have a desire to seek and to save the lost, those lost sheep, bring them in? Before you answer that question, you've got to answer this one. Can I tolerate change? Because let me tell you something, mission produces change. When you start bringing people from the outside in, the inside changes. The complexion, the attitude, the feel of the place will change. And let's be honest, for some people, change is unsettling. It's like the man who said, I don't mind change so long as it doesn't make any difference. <laughs> you have a heart for the lost? 
Church has to be about mission because, you see, God is about mission. And it's a mark of the authentic church. Here's the fourth mark. Unity. It should come as no surprise to us that because God is concerned with mission, and because mission produces change, that the very next thing Jesus asks is that his followers might be one. Verse 21, Father, grant that they may all be one, just as you are in me and I am in you. We have a great Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and it has this line in it. O come, desire of nations, come, and bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad divisions cease, and be thou our King of peace. Sad divisions, do they exist? They exist everywhere we turn. They exist in politics where Republicans are divided from Democrats. They exist among people of different colors where whites and blacks and browns are at each other's throats. They exist among nations where countries vie for territory and control and power. And yes, as much as we hate to admit it, they exist in the church as well. Where Baptists war with Methodists and Methodists war with Lutherans and Lutherans war with Catholics and Catholics war with Anglicans and Anglicans war with Episcopalians and Episcopalians, well, they war with everybody. <laughs> and how sad it is. A parent, a father or mother will tell you there is nothing that will so break the heart that they have division in the family. Nothing will so wound a mother or father to see their children at each other's throats. And there is nothing that so breaks the heart of God as to see his children divided. And that's why Jesus prayed for unity. Now what kind of unity is Jesus talking about here? When he prays for unity, what does he mean? Does he mean some sort of institutional unity, the kind of unity that comes from being part of the same organization? Church has known moments like that. During the Middle Ages, all of Europe was controlled by one vast ecclesiastical power, the Roman Church. But in spite of all of that ecclesiastical oneness, history tells us that the Middle Ages were not an age of great faith. So it can't be that. When Jesus prays for unity, is he talking about conformity? You know, the kind of unity where everybody is exactly alike. They dress alike, they talk alike, they think alike, like a row of Wheaties boxes on the grocery store shelf. No, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about unity at the deepest level. The kind of unity, he says, that exists between the persons of the Trinity. It's the unity that comes from the knowledge that we are all sinners who have been redeemed at countless cost and adopted into God's family. Oh, we may disagree on modes of music, styles of worship, modes of baptism, and that sort of thing. But what unites us, the truth of the gospel, is far greater than anything that divides us. Do you realize that if you're a Christian today, you have been adopted into the family of God? It is an enormous family. And are you working for and praying for the unity of all believers that the witness of Christ may go forth in power to the world? Jesus says unity, unity at the deepest level, the level of truth, 
That is a mark of the authentic Christian life. Which brings us then to the fifth and final mark. It's the one we've all been waiting for. The last verse of today's lesson, Jesus says, Father, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. We would have expected love to have come first, as I said. We expected love to lead the list, but Jesus puts it at the very end. You know why? Because it is love that ties all the others together. Without love, all the others get distorted. Think about it. What is joy if you take away love? It's hedonism. It's self-centered satisfaction. What is holiness? If you take away love, it's self-righteousness, the kind of self-righteousness that characterized the life of the Pharisees. What is mission? If you take away love, it's imperialism. It's colonialism dressed up in ecclesiastical garb. And what is unity if you take away love? It's tyranny. It's a forced compliance. But add love to the equation and everything changes. For it is love of God that leads to real joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. It is the love of Christ that leads to holiness. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's love of neighbor that leads to mission, seeking and saving the lost. It's the love of the truth that leads to lasting unity. Look for the marks, that forensic scientist said. Look for the marks and you will find the genuine article. When people look at you, do they see the marks? Do they see a joyful Christian? Do they see someone who is walking out of step with the world? Do they see someone who has a heart for the lost and is willing to change? Do they see someone who is working with other Christians of different denominations for the sake of the gospel? Do they see someone whose life is characterized by that love, the kind of love that mounted the arms of the cross for you and for me? Jesus prayed that you and I might bear the distinguishing marks of an authentic Christian life. May it be true for you and for me and for all of us that this world may see the genuine article. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this wonderful prayer that Jesus offered on our behalf, the high priestly prayer, the real Lord's prayer. We pray that this prayer might be true for us, that these marks might be evident in our lives, that an unbelieving world might find in us a relationship with him whom to know is life everlasting, even Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.